Machine learning is a powerful tool in data science, but a complex one too. When you rely on a statistical model to identify patterns in data, the possibilities are seemingly endless, but it makes it that much harder to identify interpretability and bias issues. While machine learning algorithms are better at making predictions than humans, sometimes a human is still needed to verify the prediction, especially in highly regulated industries. When it comes to quality in AI models, it's all about use cases. And organizations need to consider their tolerance for risk before they put all their eggs in the AI basket. Hi, I'm Ryan Black, Assistant Site Editor of Search Software Quality. And I'm David Carty, Site Editor of Search Software Quality. This is the Test and Release Podcast, where we speak with experts about software development and testing topics. In this episode, we speak with Tanmay Bakshi, a software developer and developer advocate at IBM. He's also a Google developer expert for machine learning and IBM champion for cloud, not to mention a keynote speaker and the author of three books. That's quite the impressive resume, let alone for someone who achieved all that by age 16. His YouTube channel, Tanmay Teaches, has more than 330,000 subscribers. He's passionate about helping young and inexperienced programmers, as you might guess, but he believes the way they are being taught is fundamentally wrong. In this podcast, we'll talk about why. Bakshi also explains why he's a big fan of Julia for machine learning and Swift for native iOS app development. He's written about these languages extensively with two of his books, Tanmay Teaches Julia for Beginners, a springboard to machine learning for all ages, and Hello Swift, iOS app programming for kids and other beginners. Here's our conversation with Tanmay Bakshi. Tanmay, you've learned a lot as a, a young aspiring developer. I'm sure you built some apps from a young age, that kind of thing. Um, for kids today who are experimenting with programming, uh, what sorts of guardrails would you recommend they put in place? Uh, young programmers can make mistakes, right? Uh, so can professional ones, by the way, but um, how should their uh, parents or instructors or how should they even uh, prevent themselves from making a costly mistake? So, uh, I mean, I feel like it's important to, to generalize there um, and to say, and to really specify what we mean by mistake. What I'll start off by saying is that I do currently believe that a lot of the ways that young people are taught to code is wrong. It's fundamentally not being taught the right way. And the reason I say that is because, look, if you take, if you take a look at what programming is, I believe that programming isn't about writing code. Right? It's not about taking a language and, and writing code in that language. It's more about how do you take a problem and how do you deconstruct it into its individual pieces and use the building blocks that programming languages provide you with to solve that problem. And then going from that logic and that, that flow to then writing code is simple. That's the easy part, right? And I feel like currently the way young people are taught to code is very, very like um, code centric. It's very programming centric and not logic centric. You know, the goal is, hey, look, you can type this code and you can make the computer do something, not, hey, there's this logic that you can write to solve this problem and the computer is the one solving this problem if you write the code for it. So I feel like that, that's one thing. And sometimes it can be difficult to teach in that way. I mean, as you mentioned, everybody makes mistakes, right? So not just mm -hmm. beginners, professionals make mistakes as well. And when it comes to programming and technology in specific, although this does really apply to every single field, you can't expect things to work on the first try, right? Like, I mean, 
I, I know for a fact that whenever something complex is worked on the first try for me, it's usually because it hasn't been tested hard enough. Um, and so really, I believe it boils down to a few key things. First of all, make sure that you're not just following like a, a, a pre-built curriculum or course or, or something of that sort. Of course, those are very, very important as guidelines to keep in place. But learning by example, learning by solving problems that you think are interesting, that's what's really going to help because then you're coming up with the problems, you're coming up with the logic to solve them, and then you're going ahead and implementing the code for that. So being able to practice that computational thinking is absolutely key. And from there, the sort of perseverance and persistence is also really, really important because, again, when it comes to technology, things don't work on the first try. They take many tries, and it's really sort of this, this evolution uh, and remembering that every single time you solve a problem, you're learning and, and you, won't be so, you won't be facing problems like that again, right? And so that's actually something that I try and do with, with my books as well. Right, so so I like to share my knowledge through all sorts of media, books being one of them, and I don't just want to write books that have, you know, okay, here's a programming language, here's how you use all the individual components, just like a lot of other books, but rather in every single chapter, how can we build actual example applications that leverage all of the different building blocks that we've talked about so far to build more and more and more complex applications, and in doing so, how can we first of all step back from the code? look at the problem, solve the problem, and then write the code, then go back into that. Um, so even for complex topics like machine learning, right? So like, for example, my, my latest book on, on Julia, uh, Tanya Teaches Julia, um, that book, I've written it with McGraw-Hill, it's the first in a new series called Tanya Teaches. Um, and this, this book is for all sorts of beginners that want to learn the Julia language, and we start off from scratch, you've never programmed before, and at the end, I actually introduce you to machine learning technology through simple examples, even getting into like Google Deep Dream, and all of that happens throughout the course of the book with examples, right? Teaching you that computational thinking. So I feel like that's that's the main that, that that's the most effective way to learn how to program. Focus on logic, focus on computational thinking and problem solving. Code writing comes second. You mentioned, of course, the way people actually learn programming languages, like they're not going to get things right the first time. Mm -hmm. But of course. I think I think what a lot of enterprises, like IT enterprises, try to do is try to reduce the number of first-time errors because you know, mm -hmm. of course, make efficient. They get a product faster to market. So, how 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 would uh, you balance that reality? What you're saying is, well, you're describing an approach that really kind of just sounds more conducive to the way people actually learn about programming. So. Look, I mean, it kind of depends on how you look at it, right? So if the question is, you know, how should young people learn how to code without having to think about like an enterprise mindset just yet, then yeah, that's the way that I believe young people should learn how to code, right? You should be learning by example, you should be learning with logic and less on actually code writing. But then if we were to sort of switch over to 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 sort of like enterprises and how we like build and release like the production grade products, um, then things change a little bit. I mean, as I mentioned, things don't usually work on the first try. Um, but then what, what, what I'm talking about here is, and also, sorry, one, one more thing that we have to make a distinction between would be sort of scientific advancement and innovation and then also just like releasing products, right? So like, for example, um, at IBM, well, let me give you like an actual firsthand example. Uh, I have been working on a new project in the field of, of quality assurance 
where what I'm working on is is scientifically innovative. Like what 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 I'm working on in terms of compiler technology or machine learning technology doesn't exist yet. So there's a lot of trial and error going on with some of the initial components. Like for example, this custom instrumentation that we're building, and this requires many many sort of stages of just starting from scratch, trying again. However, when it comes to things that are more standard, like for example, IBM's Watson Studio, which used to be called Data Science Experience, that took IBM, what, six, seven months to sort of get an initial prototype for, and then another couple of months to release it out to the public. Um, and the thing about that is that, you know, there, there was no fundamentally like innovation required in, in terms of like advancing technological barriers, but instead it was, all right, we know all these little bits and pieces work. They're already there. We've got to put them together into one easy to use package. Um, so I would say it depends. Uh, I, I feel like the scope of the question sort of increased there, but if it's about young people learning to code, then yes, it's about that logic. It's about that learning that, you know, nothing's going to work on the first try, but you're going to gain more experience and that experience is going to help you in the future. And when it comes to like building applications, for example, IBM data science experience or Watson Studio, that's going to be super helpful, right? In a few iterations, you're going to have complex technology working. But then when it comes to like research or, or scientific advancement, then again, it comes back to that, for lack of a better phrase, trial and error. Um, as to like, you're going to need to try multiple different things to see what works and what doesn't. I also wanted to ask you, so say I have no pre-existing uh, pre knowledge of Julia, which of course you wrote a book about, but I want to build an app with Julia. What app of programming language should I set out to learn about first? So here's the thing. Julia is a language that has been, I mean, first of all, you know, for Julia has been purpose-built for scientific computing and machine learning and AI. And so you would think that, hey, if I want to develop an app in Julia, then maybe I should start programming somewhere else first and then come over to Julia since it's meant for all these complex topics, right? Like, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily advise starting off with a language like C or C++ because then again, you're focusing too much on, on the nitty-gritty of code and not enough on, on computational thinking. Right, and so assuming you've never programmed one before, and so you you would think that there would be a similar restriction for Julia, but I'm glad to say that there isn't. Julia leverages compiler technology, which is something that I'm really passionate about, um, and it leverages this new compiler technology in order to create a, a programming experience that is as intuitive or as easy as Python's but at the same time it's as high performance as a language like C, right? So your code can be compiled on the fly, it can do type inference, it can do all these wonderful things, and it can do it really fast to the point where you can write CUDA kernels in Julia, you can write uh, all sorts of things and have them run at like C, C++ performance. Um, and so, so that's sort of the entire goal of Julia is to be a language that is as easy to use, easy to learn as Python, but still high performance enough to be used for all sorts of different applications like machine learning and support, you know, native compiler extensions, all sorts of things. So essentially what I'm trying to say is that you don't need to start off with another language. You can start off with the Julia language because of the fact that it's so simple, because of the fact that it's offloads a lot of the work from you to the compiler. Julia is a great way to start, enables you to focus on computational thinking, but at the same time get into next generation technologies. I'm, I'm glad you brought up machine learning because I wanted to ask you about uh, how programmers can make use of machine learning libraries with Julia. 
So like, what are some of the unique benefits to the development of machine learning apps with Julia? Sure. So look, machine learning technology and Julia fit perfectly together. And the reason I say that is because, again, machine learning is important enough that many different companies believe it supports first-class compiler support. So what that means is machine learning technology is an important enough suite of algorithms, a suite of technologies, that maybe we should be integrating that capability directly into the programming language compilers to make our lives easier. Um, very, very few technologies have seen this sort of purpose, uh, purpose, purposeful integration within within programming languages. But Julia is one of the languages that fits with that that sort of model. Um, so, like for example, let's just say we want to work on a, a, a one of these exotic machine learning, deep learning architectures called tree recursive neural networks. So not recurrent neural networks. They don't understand data over time. They understand data over structure. So recursive neural nets. So for example, let's just say you were to take a sentence and, and split it up into like a parse tree using the Stanford uh, NLP um, parsing toolkit. Uh, and if you were to take that tree, how can you then leverage not only the, the, the words in that sentence and the tokens, but how can you also leverage the structure of that sentence that the, that the toolkit extracts? Now, traditionally with TensorFlow, this would require multiple hundred lines of code because then you have to you know, do this weird hack in order to have the model understand different kinds of inputs based off of whether you have a leaf node or you have uh, a node with multiple different, um, multiple different inputs from different leaf nodes. It, it gets really, really complex handling the differentiation and the gradient descent for such an exotic architecture because this isn't usual. This isn't something you do every day with TensorFlow. And it's very, very use case specific. But then when you come over to Julia, suddenly it's five lines of code because now the compiler is able to look at all of your code at once and say, all right, here's a graph for literally everything you're doing just by you know, doing source to source automatic differentiation. So using this new library called Zygote, you can actually take literally any Julia function, you can take a look at the LLVM code for it, and you can generate a new LLVM function, which is the intermediate representation for Julia, that is that represents that same function's gradient. And so these sorts of like language uh, language native compiler extensions, for example, are, are just one of the reasons that Julia is perfect for machine learning. And there are multiple different libraries that make great use of this. So for example, the Flux library is built in 100% Julia code. And it can run exactly what I'm saying, so like five lines of code for a recursive neural network. It can run all this sort of stuff. It can run on GPU. It can run on all sorts of different accelerators without having to use any C code. It's all written in native Julia because Julia has the capability to compile down to whatever it is that these accelerators need. And so the fact that we're only using one language makes it so people can actually contribute to Flux. The fact that Flux is being written in Julia makes it so you can define exotic architectures in like five lines of code. So all of this added up together makes Julia like the perfect environment for machine learning, deep learning development. It sounds like, in a nutshell, what Julia does for machine learning development is essentially just make it much simpler, like reduce the number of lines of code that like developers have to look at or write. Is that correct? 
in essence, yes. But I would also add on to that. First of all, it reduces the amount of lines of code that a developer would need to write or would need to look at. It also reduces the number of languages you need to use. So you don't need to write you know, components in C or components in Fortran or whatever. You can just write everything in Julia. Tianmei, in, in conversations I've had about AI in QA circles, things like AI bias come up. Uh, some people look at machine learning and neural networks as a black box. I know mm -hmm. some machine learning practitioners might bristle at that, but you know that is some of the perception out there. Um, so there's still a lot of uh, you know there's a lot of worry about how to ensure quality in machine learning models. Um, how do you think organizations should approach that? So I, I would say that the way you apply machine learning technology and the way that you solve problems like this, I mean, we touched upon many different problems, right? So the interpretability, the black box problems, that, that's in one group, and then we touched upon the bias problem. Mm -hmm. But I, I would say that all of these problems don't have one individual clear-cut solution. It depends very specifically on the kinds of architectures, kinds of models you're using, where you're using them, why you're using them. It, it depends on a lot of different things. Now, I will say, if we were to want to generalize a little bit, there are some solutions to these problems. Like, for example, for bias, um, there's the open source AI Fairness 360 toolkit that you could use um, from IBM Research. Uh, that enables you to use some cutting edge techniques to identify bias in your data and even machine learning models and try and, 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 and sort of um, try and sort of dampen that. But then if you were to think about interpretability, then you could probably use something like Watson OpenScale and you can use those services in order to take a look at what exactly it is that your models are, um, you know, interpreting from your data. Now, and granted, these don't work on more complex deep neural network models, they do work on machine learning models. Now, let's just take a look at a simple example. Let's say we're taking a look at neural machine translation, and we want to be able to figure out why exactly we came from one word or one sentence in English to another sentence in, in say, French or Russian, right? In that specific case, if you were using a sequence-to-sequence -sequence neural, neural machine translation model, this is you know, a couple months old, nowadays we've got better models, but let's just say you are, then you could be using the attention layer from your neural network in order to try and figure out what the relationships are between words in both sentences. And that's something that you could display to your user and say, hey, here's what we translated from English to French. So if you see something wrong here, that's, that's, that's because the model um, didn't understand you know, something to do with the translation. Um, so that would be what you would do in that specific circumstance. If you're doing visual recognition, the most you can really do in that case is something like the, the gradient class activation maps, GradCam, where you actually take a look at the image and you take a look at the class and you go you know, backwards and you take a look at the gradients with respect to the input. And based off of that, you're trying to determine what parts of the image were telling the neural net that, hey, these are the classes within the image. So it really depends on the use case when it comes to interpretability. And, and in terms of trusting models, I would say that, again, it boils back down to the use case. If you're doing something as important as diagnosing cancer, then obviously there's still going to be a human in the loop that is looking at the model, is looking at its predictions, and potentially even looking at some high level, um, for lack of a better word, reasoning. So like for example, using GradCam to see why the model came to a decision. And that human in the loop is the one verifying that to make sure there's no edge cases that the network is missing or there's, that the network isn't making a mistake.
But at the same time, the network exists to enable that human to not have to do everything from scratch, to only need to do verification, and to sort of speed that process up, and in some cases increase accuracy by dealing with non-edge cases better than a human can. So that's one thing. But if you're talking about something as simple or harmless as keyword prediction, so like for example, you're, you're typing on your phone and the quick type predictions on the top of the keyboard, something as harmless as that doesn't really need as much verification or trust. Something like Gmail's smart code doesn't, doesn't need smart code, doesn't need as much trust. So I would say that it boils down to the industry the regulations around it, how much we have, how much of an impact it's going to have on people's lives. So when it comes to really trusting machine learning models, if it's something that people's lives depend on, there should be a human in the loop as of now. Of course, there are some exceptions to this rule. I know that as well. So, I mean, you could take a look at things like, you know, self-driving cars. People's lives are in, in machine learning's hands at that point as well, but there's no human in the loop. And so that's sort of where we have to draw the draw the line. Can we have we trained this machine learning model with enough edge cases or enough data for us to be able to trust that in the majority of circumstances it won't make a mistake? A mistake is inevitable, but can we trust that in the majority of circumstances, at least more than a human, it won't make a mistake? So it really depends on what I would say. Sure. Uh, to switch gears a little bit, uh, you also wrote a book called Hello Swift, uh, iOS yeah. app programming for kids and other beginners. Um, I saw a story recently in Business Insider uh, just the other day that said more than 500,000 apps in the Apple App Store are at least partially written in Swift. Um, what makes this language so intriguing for mobile app developers and what makes it easy for young programmers to pick up, uh, which you know basically uh, sparked the book idea for you? Sure. So I mean, for, for the longest time, my two favorite languages have been Swift and Julia. Uh, and the reason I say that is because they're very, very useful in their respective areas. Nowadays, Swift has started to become more useful outside of even just mobile app development. But what really sets Swift apart is what I would say, and, and this is very subjective and, and in a way, um, in, in a way, it's difficult to describe exactly what makes Swift so powerful apart from its compiler technology and its optimizations and, and the fact that it was built for mobile development, like even its memory management arc, it uses, it uses automatic reference counting and garbage collection, which is great for mobile. There's all sorts of things that it does there. Um, but then there's also just generally the, 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 for again, for lack of a better word here, the elegance of the language is something that does set it apart. The, the features that the language has in terms of complex support for generics, you know, value and reference types, cal, caveat, right, um, all these different things that the, that the language supports, but yet being able to stitch them together in the way that Swift does is something that not a lot of languages get right. So developers love to program in Swift. And it's a great way for kids to get started because the syntax is just generally so simple. It gives you a great idea of what it's like to program in ahead of time compiled languages, unlike Julia, which is just in time compiled, so it can be more like Python. This has to be more like C or Java. Um, but at the same time, it's simple, it's it's easy to use, right? You can you can write Swift code that 
is very, very easy to read, but still fast. But at the same time, if you wanted to, you could use all sorts of C APIs and write really, really low-level code and manually manage memory. So you can go from you know trusting the Swift compiler entirely to not even to to essentially barely using it. So the flexibility and the dynamic nature of the language and the fact that it can all coexist is really, really nice. And then, of course, there's the fact that it uses the LLVM compiler infrastructure. Now, the fact that it uses LLVM and the fact that in the future it will be using MLIR, which is multi-level intermediate representation, a new um, sort of project uh, at, at LLVM, means that things like Google Swift or TensorFlow can actually leverage that in order to extract TensorFlow graphs directly outside, directly out of Swift code. And what that means is we can write machine learning models very, very simply in script code as well, just like Julia. Now, Julia still has a few advantages in terms of native compiler extensions and things like that. So Swift for TensorFlow doesn't solve the many language problem, but it does solve that, you know, hundreds of lines of code for an exotic architecture problem. So the fact that it's so simple to use, the fact that you can go from zero to 100 in terms of control while still enabling all of that code to coexist, really makes it so that that language is something that developers love to use. I was I was curious how Swift in particular compares to hybrid app development, though. Like, like since we're talking about the creation of apps for iOS and Android, like, what are Swift's specific advantages, like, compared to hybrid app development? So I feel like if you were to talk about Swift specific, then it's not even about the language, right? So it's, it's important to differentiate between the language, the framework, and, and the experience. So Swift as a language isn't really an app development language. It's an open source general purpose programming language. And then if we were to take a step back, you can also use Swift for mobile app development on iOS, and Apple provides the SDKs for that, Swift UI, UI Kit, you know, Cocoa, Cocoa Touch, all these things are what Apple provides to help you do app dev in Swift. But Swift itself is a general purpose programming language. Now, I guess what your real question would be in, in that case would be, what's the difference or, or what's the advantages of using Apple's native development frameworks like Swift UI or like Cocoa Touch versus using something you know that, that enables you to develop hybrid apps. Now I am personally a really, really big fan of developing native applications for different platforms. And the reason I say that is because of integration into a platform. And integration to a platform really sets applications apart. So if you take a look at, at generally why a lot of people even buy Apple products in the first place, it's because they work together really, really well. If you buy an iPhone, eventually you'll be pressured into buying a Mac and you'll be pressured into switching from Google Drive to iCloud and you'll be pressured to switching from Spotify to Apple Music and all of this stuff just because everything works together so incredibly well. And not even just that, even third-party applications integrate into the Apple ecosystem very, very well because they feel like they're already a part of the phone. If you use an application that you download from the App Store that is natively built for iOS, you're using all those native iOS UI components, you're using all of that, and that makes it feel like just another part of the Apple experience. And the, the way that you can provide that experience is by using the frameworks that Apple gives you. 
If you're trying to generalize among platforms, so if you're trying to build one app for iOS and Android, suddenly you have to generalize, hey, there's a UI table view and a list in Android, and we're just going to call this a list. And you lose some of that platform-specific functionality that makes it feel like an Apple app, or on Android would make it feel like an Android app. So the feeling of, hey, there's a context switch. I just left an Apple environment, entered this new environment, now I'm going back to Apple. I don't want those context switches. I want to have a native experience across platforms, which is why using these platform-specific SDKs is sometimes really advantageous. To end on a more future-leaning question, um, you'll likely be around to see the future of AI and machine learning in data science and application development. Heck, you might even have a hand in shaping that future, right? So uh, what do you see the possibilities of these technologies in the future? And what do you personally hope to achieve in these fields? So, so I mean, first of all, I would say that when it comes to a technology like, like AI or machine learning, it's really very difficult to predict what the future looks like. And I mean, that's because every day things are changing. There's a paradigm shift when you don't expect it, right? So, I mean, just a couple of years ago, we never would have thought neural networks would have been this good at generating data, but then suddenly Ian Goodfellow, you know, one night invents the, the generative adversarial network and things change. Um, and, and there's exponential growth from there. So things change very, very quickly. But what I will say is in general, I see a few things. First of all, this isn't even a technical thing. I just feel like a, people's expectations from AI will finally start to die down a little bit and become a lot more realistic. Right now, we have hyperinflated expectations of what AI is going to do and, and how it's going to work, and it's going to, you know, it's going to become as intelligent as humans and all this sort of stuff. And as we see more and more people continuing to make these predictions, but then not actually happening or then falling through, we will start to lose trust in those predictions and actually start to have a more realistic view of what artificial intelligence means for humanity. So that's one thing. The general public will have a better perception of AI in the coming future. I can't say when people's perspectives will start to shift, but I hope that within the next few years it does because we need to make better and more informed decisions based off of those views. So that's one thing. The second thing I would say is that we will start to see a lot more of these major challenges that we even mentioned start to get solved. Things like interpretability. How can we explain what a neural network does? How can we explain what a machine learning model does in terms of like decisions? How can we inject our own knowledge into neural networks? How can we make it so they're not just reliant on data? How can we also enable them to work off of data or knowledge that we already have structured? You know, IBM is already working on some technology, IBM Research has neural networks that can do symbolic reasoning uh, apart from just the data that they're trained on. So they're working on that sort of stuff. Um, I would also say that we're going to start to see people understand the reason for some of these problems, things like the bias problem. People need to understand that's not because artificial intelligence is saying, hey, I don't like this kind of human, but rather because our data is fundamentally biased. And it's not just, you know, qualities like, you know, human-specific qualities like, like race or gender or whatever. It's also just generally, hey, you could have an aircraft engine that a certain, you know, neural network is more biased to. It's just about the data and the mathematics behind it. So those are a few things. We're going to start to see um, 
less inflated expectations for what AI is going to be doing. We're going to start to understand what technology is about. We're going to start to see some of these problems solved. We're going to understand the reasoning behind some of these problems as well. Switching to what I want to be doing in these fields, though, well, there's, there's a lot of stuff that I want to do, right? So I, I love working with next generation technologies, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning being sort of main suite of technology that I use. Mainly, I want to be applying these technologies in the fields of healthcare and education. So really taking this tech, taking healthcare education fields where I believe it can make an impact and enabling people within these fields to leverage the technology as much as possible. I mean, to quote, um, I, I have a series that I host um, at least once every month uh, called Tech Time with Tammy. And in the first episode, which uh, I was actually hosting that with um, Sam Lightstone and Rob Hyde, who are both IBM fellows, my mentors, they're CTOs. And to quote Sam Lightstone, he said that um, to our artificial intelligence technology won't replace humans, but humans that use artificial intelligence will be replacing humans that don't. Uh, and so I, I really love that quote. Uh, and so I really want to enable as many humans as possible to leverage this technology in the most accessible way. And apart from that, not even just applying this tech, but also enabling everybody to use it, taking whatever it is that I learn about it, sharing it through resources like my YouTube channel, the workshops that I conduct, the books that I write, Tanner teaches Julia Hellas with me, some of them. Um, and, and then from there, really just working towards my goal of reaching out to 100,000 aspiring coders. Um, so far, I'm around 17,000 people there. But yeah, that's, that's sort of what I want to do. Implementing this technology in fields like healthcare and education, enabling developers to make use of it, and sort of sharing my knowledge at the same time. Well, we certainly wish you the best of luck in those endeavors in the future. And uh, thank you so much for a, a very interesting conversation. Yes, thank, thank you, you for joining us. Thank you. Once again, our guest today was Tan May Bakshi. He's the author of three books, including Tan May Teaches Julia for Beginners, A Springboard to Machine Learning for All Ages, and Hello Swift, iOS App Programming for Kids and Other Beginners. Subscribe to the Test and Release podcast for more interviews with experts on application development and testing topics. You could also read expert advice, tutorials, and news stories at searchsoftwarequality.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, at SoftwareTestTT.